This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome back to Pulling Back the Canvas. It's season two. Can we do seasons? Doing seasons makes it sound more, you know, professional than it is. Maybe I won't do seasons. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll fool myself into thinking I'm more professional than I am. Anyway, welcome back. Um, I'm Ariel, your host. <laughs> it feels weird to call myself a host. Um, sure, I'm your host. Uh, and this is uh, the podcast where I talk about art. Yes, art. Sorry, brain brain isn't working. We're over halfway through term now and uh, we're, we're stressed. <laughs> we're surviving. But are we thriving? That's a whole other conversation. Anyway, welcome back. We're here to talk about art. And because my brain is pretty frazzled, um, and also I realised yesterday that I had to prepare something for today uh, to record, um, <laughs> I have chosen something that I had on the back burner anyway that didn't make last year... Um, yeah, didn't make an episode last year. Um, so you're getting it fresh brand new this year. How wonderful. I'm really treating, treating you all to something that I didn't get around to doing. I hope you're well, by the way. I hope, I hope everything's going great or just as well as it can be. You can sit down, relax, and I'm going to have a chat about the Pre-Raphaelites. I have talked about these guys before. Um... They are an interesting bunch, uh, a dramatic bunch, and they oh, there is so much to talk about them, uh, so much to talk about with them, but I am whittling it down to something very easy <laughs> that I'm already familiar with, because again, brain fried. So I haven't decided what I'm titling this yet. You probably know before I do. Uh, as you are listening to this and I am recording it. Um, but I am toying between pre-Raphaelites and the tragic woman or the pre-Raphaelite hypocrisy of viewing femininity. And maybe I'll just combine the two. I, I am I have the working the working title, The Hypocrisy of the Pre-Raphaelites and their obsession with the tragic woman. Um, maybe I'll maybe I'll change it again. Who knows? The, we have no rules. So yeah, that's that's where we're at with this. It's gonna it's gonna be about the way they portray women in art, um, and that's predominantly through a tragic woman, essentially. And then at the end, we're gonna look at the hypocrisy of their art and of that um, desire to depict femininity uh, in a certain way. I guess yeah, that makes sense. Because I, this I chose that particular um, theme because the tragic woman, in sort of quotes, uh, appears a lot in their art, <laughs> like a bunch. Um, I really had to cherry pick uh, paintings, and even then, there are so many in this I'm going to talk about in this in this uh, episode. So um, we're really doing a an epic for the first episode back. Because there are so many paintings, um... I have decided that I might start up an Instagram. Exciting, hey? So then you can actually see the paintings I'm talking about rather than having to Google them rapidly while while listening. Um, 
and then you can check them out and anything else that I discuss or quote during the episode so then you can check it out yourself if you'd like to um yes so I will be shouting that out again if I have set it up if I haven't set it up yet which is likely because I forget to do things pretty pretty frequently I, I won't link it but I will I'll plug it once it's um alive but the point is but yes I wanted to explore this through a collection of paintings rather than just one or two because it just shows how pre prevalent um and widespread this theme was um through through the pre-raphaelite brotherhood um so let's get into it let's get into it i hope you're sitting comfortably and i shall begin first a little bit of an intro into the pre-raphaelites first part part one <laughs> this is turning into like an audio essay part one um intro on the pre-raphaelites they were founded in 1848 um our main lads are william holman hunt John Everett Millet, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, Gabriel, 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 I don't know, you decide, William Michael Rossetti, uh, James Collinson, Frederick George Stevens, and Thomas Woolner. So seven of them. Uh, others joined or were associated later, like William Morris, probably know him, uh, Edward Byrne Jones, John William Waterhouse, Simeon Solomon, uh, John Ruskin was also very associated with the boys. Um, and it wasn't just boys. Uh, Elizabeth Siddle was involved. She was an artist and a poet in her own right, but she was also uh, a major model for the Pre-Raphaelites. Uh, Christina Rossetti, um, Dante Gabriel's uh, sister, was also involved. She was a major poet, probably studied some of her poetry at school. Uh, Fanny Conforth, another model. And also Fanny Eaton, who was another model. Um, and I'll have a chat about her a bit later because she's in one of the paintings I'm talking about. And also there were even couples like the Maddox Browns. So there is a huge group of people um, wanting to be a part of this artistic movement. So it's a big old movement. Um, and I think I mentioned them during the French Revolution episode. I don't know, can't remember. That was, that was like months ago now. <laughs> Um, but basically, the whole art movement, if I'm really whittling it down, really watering it down, um, was largely a reaction against the industrial revolution, the urban reality, the uh, Victorian stiff upper lipness um, and uh, conservatism that was around them so they're going against this and they want to go back into myth into legend religion history romanticism um nature things like that because the world around them kind of sucked their early doctrine consisted of only four points one to have genuine ideas to express two to study nature uh, attentively so as to know how to express them Three, to sympathise with what is direct and serious and heartfelt in previous art to the exclusion of what is conventional and self-parading and learned by rote. And, number four, most indispensable of all, to produce thoroughly good pictures and statues. I quite like that last one. I just like, make good art, everyone! <laughs> it sounds like a pep talk at the start of like a, uh, like a workshop or something. Hunt and Mille would uh, actually go on to prefer realism, uh, whilst Rossetti and Byrne Jones uh, did a lot of medieval-inspired art, um, very high romantic, 
kind of uh, artwork. But this whole, you know, retreating to romantic subjects is actually very interesting in itself. Um, and uh, especially within art or artistic expression or personal expression, um, like in, in the broadest sense, basically. Because, I mean, I don't, I don't want to talk about the terrible things that have happened over the past year, you know, COVID. Um, but in the past year, because of lots of awful things going on um, and people feeling horribly run down um, and tired and burnt out, because of just just general the world um i've noticed a lot of people finding solace in past art and i use art in the sort of very loosely in the broadest sense of of, of the term um because lots of people are going back to um fashions from the past whether it's literally just the 2000s or further back to 60s 70s a lot of people enjoying very vintage um expression of self um or even looking at myth mythical or historical sides of things people um reading books that they used to read when they were kids or enjoying um fantasy more or um people admiring even pastoral ways of life like it's it's all very um i think virgil um going in in the roman era after experiencing lots of, lots of civil war writing about the countryside and a simple way of life and now after having a horrible way of life for a year people are going back to a cottage core aesthetic and i use that in inver inverted co uh, commas um and enjoying a life or elements from a life that isn't like their own um and something that seems more pure more innocent more cozy and comforting but my point is here um is that the pre-raphaelites were doing what people generally do a lot during times of change or stress they look back to the past or for stories and mythology for comfort and essentially they're looking back at a point of in time that was stable or at least seems stable to the onlooker um it seems stable to those in the future looking back at these past um past themes and ideologies and thinking that's when things were stable so where do tragic women come into this <laughs> i'm glad you asked um i will get on to that um but essentially it is looking at a pure and innocent form of femininity um that is freer or appears freer to these pre-raphaelites um, compared to the rigid conservative femininity that they were experiencing in the Victorian world. Um, but first, uh, we'll have a look at some of the women the pre-Raphaelites chose to paint. First up, first on our list, number one, um, a lady called Mariamne. Um, after I, I once expressed my discomfort I, on, a, I don't know, social media somewhere, um, at remembering that the Bible was talking about like people who actually existed because I was learning about uh, the Emperor Augustus at the time and then who rocks up um, but King Herod um, and King Herod isn't just some evil storybook character who killed babies he was a real guy um, and then a friend of mine asked if I'd ever heard about Mariamne and I hadn't so here we are a Wikipedia deep dive later 
basically, Mariamne was a daughter of a major dynasty in Judea, um, and she was married to um, Herod, that Herod, um, in order to consolidate his rule um, and influence, especially as he was properly chummy with the Romans, and so he wanted to appear less like he was a bootlicker to them. Um, and as Mariam was from an old and influential family in the region, she helped do that. I will be switching between calling her Mariamne and Mariam because they're uh, interchangeable in this in this context. So the problem was, though, that Herod's sister, Salome, didn't get on with Mariam at all. Uh, Mariam knew she was from an important family, and so um, technically marrying Herod was beneath her, and she didn't she didn't enjoy that. So they butted heads a lot. Herod had to go off on visits um, occasionally. There was a, an episode where Mariam's brother actually was killed and um, Mariam's mother, Alexandra, um, was good mates with Cleopatra and Mark Anthony because, you know, this is the ancient Mediterranean world and everyone seems to know each other. Um, and so Herod is called in by them to explain uh, the situation about um, Mariam's brother's death. Uh, but before he leaves, he leaves his uncle, uh, Joseph, with Mariam, with the orders that if Herod died, Joseph was to kill Mariam. Because apparently, if Herod can't have her, no one can. <laughs> I think he thought it was a very romantic gesture, but as Mariamne would find out, actually, kind of nod on. And she did eventually find out, because she's she's a smart cookie, she gets the information out of Joseph, um... Herod doesn't die, uh, and when he comes back, uh, Salome tells Herod all about it and also suggests, you know, adds a bit of extra chaos in, that Joseph and Mariam are having an affair. Because how else could Mariamne get that information out of Joseph that Herod wanted her dead? Who knows? Everything kind of goes a bit uh, chaotic, and Joseph uh, eventually gets executed. Um, but Mariamne uh, is not punished because Herod loves her too much. Herod then has to go on another meeting, um, this time with Octavian, who'd later become uh, Augustus. And basically Octavian's testing loyalties because now Cleopatra and Mark Anthony are dead. Um, so Herod sets up another, uh, a, the same plan, just with a different guy, um, that if he dies, Mariamne dies too. And then the, uh, the, the kingdom goes to his sister, Salome. Mariam finds out, and again, because she's a smart cookie, as I said, um, and she's really not happy. Uh, so when Herod gets back, he's like, why, why are you being so mean to me? Why are you giving me the cold shoulder? And she's like, you wanted to kill me again if you died. I don't, I don't appreciate that. So... He comes to the same conclusion that she's committing adultery against him with this guy that she, he left to kill her if he died. Um, and then Salome fans the flames and says that actually uh, Mariam was also planning on poisoning Herod when he got back. And then Mariam's mother even chips in to get a sweeter deal for herself and says, yeah, no, Mariamne was actually, she was planning on killing you. Um, so... This all ends in a major tragedy, and Mariamne is put on trial, um, and she is tried and executed, and it's pushed by Salome against Herod's preferred sentence of life imprisonment. And this is what we see 
in the painting. The painting being um, Mariamne leaving the judgment seat of Herod by John William Waterhouse in 1887. And here we've got got a woman done wrong, essentially. Um, Herod's looking sheepish and sort of guilty for what he's agreed to. He's turning to his sister who's on his right. Um, and neither of them are actually making eye contact with Mariam, who's looking over her left shoulder as she leaves. She sort of has the air of, I'm holding my head high with this, but oh my days, you are a coward, Herod. Um, So we've got our first tragic woman. She's an interesting one because, um, as will be a common theme, she has genuinely done nothing wrong. Um, Yes, maybe there is some pride, Um, but that is it. She only has pride, um, as perhaps a fault against her. I don't know whether you can count that as a fault, but she has done nothing wrong. And that's why I've told her long story, um, albeit pretty briefly, but she was innocent every step of the way. Um, and the duplicitous woman, I suppose, if you can call her that, Salome, who was probably looking out for her own and her brother and etc, etc, and also they just didn't get on anyway, um, was allowed to remain alive and at the right hand of Herod. And it starts this conversation about how the pre-Raphaelites often depicted genuinely good or innocent women in death or resigned to death. So this um, is continued then in um, the really famous depiction of Ophelia and also the Lady of Shalott, which I'll be talking about in in succession. Um, Ophelia was painted between 1851 and 1852 by Sir John Everett Millet, and Ophelia is the tragic woman of Hamlet. I've got to say, I've never read the play. I think I read like the kids Shakespeare version, um, but I know the crux of it um, after doing some, you know, Wikipedia deep diving. Uh, so you could say I am an expert on Ophelia now. <laughs> Basically, Ophelia loves Hamlet. Hamlet kills her father Polonius, and she dies from overwhelming grief uh, that drives her mad. She dies off screen or uh, off stage, rather, um, whilst picking flowers. She falls into the river and drowns while singing. I don't. We're not going to question it. So that's what we've got in the painting. Uh, she's slowly floating down the stream, strewn with flowers, and a haunting and ethereal picture of death and grief. Uh, it's actually a very creepy painting. I'm looking at it now. Um, the fact that she's surrounded by verdure and greenery, yeah, she's surrounded by this greenery whilst looking very deathly, um, very dead, you know? Nice juxtaposition of subjects, Mele. I see what you did there. See what you did there. My point is, here we have another innocent woman or girl uh, dying for seemingly no reason. Uh, We get the trope also of women dying because of madness, uh, because they're so hysterical, obviously, Um, and so they succumb to their emotions. Um, Though Ophelia dies because she's so pure of heart she can't handle those emotions, 
also general madness uh, is pretty prolific in pre-Raphaelite paintings. There's also uh, Isabella or the Pot of Basil by William Holman Hunt, uh, again in 1868. Uh, so Isabella loved a guy called Lorenzo. His brothers, uh, her brothers, killed him for some reason and bury him, and then Lorenzo's ghost. Uh, goes to Isabella in a dream and then she knows where to dig up the body and then she buries his head in a pot of basil uh, which she obsesses over um, madly um, because you know <laughs> women are crazy am I right lads um, but yeah so you got that sort of weird sort of madness of women also alongside the tragic woman next on our long list though uh, is on a similar level and that is the Lady of Shalott it fits in our pre-Raphaelites liking medieval themes in their work, specifically Arthurian legend, of which Our Lady comes straight out of. Um, the Lady of Shalott's story is as follows. Uh, it actually comes from a 13th century story about Elaine of Astolat. Um, and so the lady has a name. I never knew that. I never knew the Lady of Shalott had a name. I thought it was just the Lady of Shalott. Thanks, Tennyson, for making me think she didn't have a name. Um, probably something to unpack there, but, you know, don't have time. Anyway, Elaine is stuck in a tower outside of Camelot, um, which is, as many of us probably know, Arthur's seat of power, and she's on an island upstream from the city. No one knows much about her, it's a bit of a fairy tale within a fairy tale kind of situation. She's been cursed, it's all very mysterious. And she's stuck in this tower room with only a mirror in which to look out of her window, um, for if she looks directly out of it, she shall perish. Sorry, I wanted to make it a bit more dramatic. Um, but yes, she can't look out the window or she'll be extra cursed. So she weaves all day, probably to distract her from the suckiness of not being able to actually look out her window or see the world normally. Um, there is actually a quote in Tennyson's poem where she says, I am half sick of shadows. Um, so it must suck looking through a mirror all the time it, she's not seeing the world as it truly is then one day it's not just the usual rabble uh, passing by the tower but none other than sir lancelot yes that's sir lancelot it can't be not the absolute hottest man in town um, and he's singing he is singing while he's passing by a hot man that can sing elaine is smitten and so because the shadow of him in the mirror, the, just the reflection of him isn't quite enough for her, because the mirror is nothing compared to the real thing for Elaine, um, she turns around and looks out the window for a better view for Mr. Lots of Lancing. Just like Elaine, you had one job. I know this man is hot, but please, babes, darling, don't look out the window. Anyway, she does. The mirror cracks. The curse is laid on her. It's done. She then... I want to say she falls out the window into the river. No. <laughs> no. Never mind. She leaves the tower. She leaves the tower normally. Um, and she finds a boat. And then she writes her name on it for some reason. Sure, why not? Um, and then she floats on down to Camelot. Uh, however... She dies on said boat before she arrives, which means she floats all dead through Camelot. Uh, and then uh, Mr. Prance a bunch looks down at the river at one point and then sort of says to himself, oh, she's pretty. 
Shame she's dead. Hope God looks after her. Like, mate. Babes. No. Lancelot, no. But you know, it's dramatic irony. He doesn't know that she died because of him. Um, and it's just extra tragic. Just extra, just the nail on the coffin of tragedy. And we have another tragic lady, and it's not her fault she dies either. I suppose if you really wanted to be nitpicky, you could say, oh, she didn't have to look out the window, but why was she cursed in the first place? Blame the curse, not the woman. John William Waterhouse uh, painted her in 1888, and she's actually painted as on the boat as she zoomed as <laughs> zooms down the river. <laughs> I shouldn't say she's zooming down the river. Because she's dying. Vroom vroom. <laughs> anyway, it's again all very haunting. There's some candles on the boat for some reason. We've got a great tapestry on it too. Um, my point is, why are all these innocent women dying? More on that in a bit. <laughs> I keep, I keep, I keep uh, teasing as if I'm going to answer this question. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just going to keep plying you with more tragic women. And we've got another one. Uh, I've got two more before we switch themes. We go on to part two. No, this is part two. Tragic Women, part two. Sorry, I forgot to title my next part. I'm getting minus points for this uh, audio essay. I've Yeah, so two more ladies until we get to part three. Um, and I put these next two paintings slightly apart from the three I've just discussed, and I'll explain why in... A bit. The first is The Mother of Moses by Simeon Solomon, painted around 1860. Um, and so now we're moving into the territory of biblical tragic ladies. This painting is also a snapshot in the story of Moses, um, and it's just before his mother, Jochebed, puts him in the basket and sends him off uh, along the Nile. At this point in the story, the, the story of Moses, the pharaoh of Egypt has decreed that all baby boys must be killed or drowned for some reason um and so to save her son Jochebed has to leave her baby in the hands of fate and god by putting him in a basket and placing him on the nile river moses is eventually picked up by the egyptian royal household and raised as a prince uh, so this scene this snapshot is a truly tragic one um Again, we have an innocent woman, Jochebed, having to give up her son and potentially never see him again in the hopes that he will survive. And so in this painting, she's saying her last goodbyes to her baby boy with her daughter next to her and with the threat of the pharaoh looming behind her through the tip of a pyramid that you can see in the window behind them. It's a terribly intimate and tender scene with such a tragic overtone. Uh, the model in the painting is actually um, Fanny Eaton, who I mentioned uh, previously, who's also an interesting woman. She was Jamaican-born, possibly illegitimate, and possibly also born a slave, um, but she eventually moved with her mother to England, where she worked with her mum as, as a domestic servant, um, but because the pay was pretty bad, she got into modelling for some extra money and so became a model for the Pre-Raphaelites. And this is her in the painting. She also crops up in another painting, which I'm going to talk about later, but concerning the hypocrisy of the Pre-Raphaelites. Um, 
but yes, if you think um, she is providing a space for uh, being a black woman as a as a model in these severely Victorian, despite trying to be rebellious from the art norm, um, but tend to be very white paintings. Um, so a nice addition, essentially, um, in art history. Simeon Solomon is also an interesting guy. Uh, his father was one of the first Jewish people to be awarded the freedom of the City of London. I didn't know anything about this either. Uh, it's essentially recognising that people have excelled in their particular field. Um, anyway, Simeon was also Jewish and used his art to depict and explore stories from the Hebrew Bible and Jewish life. Um, he was also a queer man uh, in a time that obviously hated queer men, queer people generally, and so he was actually arrested for sodomy a couple times, it's pretty awful. Um, but that leads me to my next tragic lady, or ladies, I suppose. So this next painting is from 1864, and he painted, Solomon painted a watercolour of Sappho and Irina in a garden at Mytilene. Sappho was a poet in ancient Greece um, and her poetry was written to go with music. Um, she's also known as a queer icon so the term sapphic extend from her own name and lesbian from her home on the island of Lesbos. So it's in the light of this that makes this painting all the more tragic not just for Sappho's context um, but for Solomon's own context because uh, here he's depicted two women uh, in a clearly romantic embrace rather than uh, rather than platonic um, in a very tender moment um, and this this is the woman who is famous for the line someone will remember us I say even in another life an anthem applied to uh, the queer people in history hoping one day that people like them will be accepted and the fact that Solomon has painted this is so heartbreaking to me it's almost as if he's projecting his want for an open accepted queerness on Sappho and Irina in this snapshot um, making her by extension another tragic woman who was again innocent um, and just trying to live her life and it yeah it just makes me very sad that um, he this queer man who couldn't be queer was painting these queer women in a private tender moment and perhaps hoping that he too could feel that anyway awfully sad awfully tragic um, however as I mentioned earlier I class these two paintings the mother of Moses uh, and Sappho and Irina slightly differently as they have more of a sense of empathy and tenderness to them unlike the more observant paintings of Ophelia, the Lady of Shalott, um, because they are sort of the perspective of an, in, of an entranced voyeur, kind of. I suppose they're all from the perspective of a voyeur, but those two seem especially not as empathetic um, and just as if someone's just watching, um, entranced almost. Okay. So you thought I'd be winding down now? No. Alas, no. We're going into part three. Buckle in. We are now on to the temptress. Because apparently, 
women can only be two things in pre-Raphaelite art. Um, pure innocent ladies or evil hot enchantresses intent on ruining you. Yes, sir, you and your life. And there are plenty of examples. Um, we've got Medea, Lilith, Circe, Morgana or Morgan Le Fay. Um, and they're the ones going to be having a wee chat about. Um, but there's, there's plenty. Medea and Circe um, are actually also doing magic in their, their portraits. Uh, Medea by Frederick Sandys. Sandys? Sandys? Uh, yeah, Frederick Sandys um, in 1868. Uh, in this painting, she's looking wild-eyed and it's got a three-eyed toad next to her um, and doing weird witchy things. Um, a contemporary critic... Uh, from the times actually said that there was loads of foul imagery um you know she's creepy she's a temptress she's scary spooky she does magic she sounds kind of cool <laughs> sorry sorry anyway uh medea herself was a prolific figure in ancient greek mythology and fiction uh she was married to jason from the argonauts at one point um, and they had five sons, and then he decided he wanted to marry a lady called Creusa. Um, so Medea gets sort of she gets a bit peed off um, and kills Creusa and Creusa's father, King Creon, and then kills her own five sons. Which I mean is a big no-no generally. Uh, shouldn't really be killing your sons, but in uh, an ancient greek context that's even worse because you're killing your own son's lady that is that's not right on any level why would you kill these men these boys so safe to say she sort of um succumbs to her female madness um in a big way you could say she girl boss too close to the sun which is funny because her great grand uh, her great grandfather was actually the sun god Helios, so I'll just let you have the little joke there. Anyway, uh, we then have Circe by John William Waterhouse again uh, from eighteen ninety one, and she's also doing magic in her portrait. Um, it's her first meeting with Odysseus in the Odyssey, uh, where she tries to trick him into drinking something and um, turning him into a pig like the rest of his crew. Um, unfortunately, Odysseus had got help from Hermes and so survives the ordeal, um, and so he doesn't get tricked. He's smarter than this temptress, um, because, you know, he's the protagonist he has to be. Um, so yes, we're in another spooky, scary temptress situation. We've got an enchantress trying to get a, a go against our, our protagonist. She's an evil lady. Um, she's also in a sheer robe which barely covers anything, you know, the temptressing of it all. And I, <laughs> I hope you're kind of picking up where I'm going with this. We also have Lilith. Um, Lilith is a great painting, another girl boss. <laughs> They're all really girl boss cast like gatekeeping. In biblical texts and stories, Lilith uh, was the first wife of Adam, um, but was too much of a girl boss. I need to Oh, I need to stop using this term. Um, yeah, she was too much of a girl boss. And so she became associated with the murder of kids. 
Uh, again, lumping women in with dead children is a surefire way to make them seem extra evil because women are supposed to love kids because, you know, wombs and things. Anyway, um, and she's also associated with the seduction of men, obviously. Sexuality of women is a whole other ballgame, um, which I'm not going to go into. But again, we have a scary temptress. So the painting's called Lady Lilith. It's by Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Um, one version from 1867 is a watercolor replica um, and featuring the model that I mentioned, Fanny Conforth. And she is very typical of the Victorian beauty standards of the time. She's very pale. She's got long light hair that's slightly curvy and curly and wavy. Um, she's got a rounded face and she's very um, soft in features. Then the later, I don't know if it's a later version, but the official version, um, we have Our Lady Lilith again but she has, she's much more angular. She looks a lot older than the other painting. Um, and she's she's got a severe jawline. She's got, um, I don't know if her nose is more pointed and her eyes are actually more pointed and look much more ethereal and less human-like on her face in this painting. She's also surrounded by, again, uh, nature and life. She's got roses behind her. There is a mirror in front uh, behind her also, which is reflecting trees and greenery from outside. And she's holding another mirror while she's brushing out her hair. And so, all these mirrors, Rossetti, you're not being <laughs> you're not being subtle. It's sort of pushing this idea of vanity and her being obsessed with her looks, um, probably in order to seduce men because that is why women look pretty. Um, high sarcasm I'm sorry sometimes if it doesn't come across um but yes she's here she's looking ethereal and, un and unearthly and she's brushing out her hair and she's worrying about her her beauty um and the mirrors here are nothing like the mirror for the Lady of Shalott for the Lady of Shalott the mirror was to see the outside world it was her point of escapism it was a luxury for her because she can't go into the outside world and here Lilith is surrounded by mirrors and her reflect, uh, being able to see herself and admire herself. It is a, for the Lady of Shalott, it wasn't a luxury, it was a necessity, sorry. And here, for Lilith, it is a luxury um, to admire herself. So yes, we have another temptress, another beautiful lady that is purely there to seduce men. But it is also inter interesting is this part three or is this part four? I'll say it's still part of uh, still uh, part three. Summary of part three: These evil women appear as being allowed to survive. The innocent women in the in the paintings are subject to tragedy. They're subject to death, and it is almost like these innocent, pure women are too pure for this world, and so they must die. They are not allowed to survive. They can't, they are, as I said, they are too innocent for the world. Um, and so this idea of femininity, that it doesn't exist, it is only storybooks, uh, storybook characters, and the pre-Raphaelites are almost saying that um, pure uh, women that are of ultimate femininity, um, ultimate desirable femininity, don't exist. They um, 
they can't exist on on this plane of existence i don't know perhaps that is one interpretation however then evil women that have subverted their gender norms um but are still desirable because um they their purpose is to seduce men or enchant them um they are allowed to survive because they have made themselves a space in the world um by being cruel and being um witches or um uh temptresses and things like that um and so they do survive because um it seems only cruel things are allowed to survive in the world i don't know another interpretation but moving on to part 4 the hypocrisy of it all there is this idea that the pre-raphaelites are actually not so revolutionary in their paintings i mean yes they still introduced new themes for art they had this uh, they went back into uh, past stories and mythologies to create art um and also they uh were controversial at their time um because they were so um open and free and not submitting to the constraints of victorian conservatism but they were still feeding into the sort of colonial patriarchal values of artistry of western art and by extension not as rebellious as um as they actually perceive themselves to be but it could be said that i'm projecting modern values on this but it it's still it's still valid i think to unpack unpack these artists and their artwork developing on this um there was a fantastic post by um at looking for mother max on instagram uh highly recommend checking it out um again if i have my instagram set up i will link this post um but they wrote a fantastic uh post about how um about the harmful wielding of black women in western art to enhance whiteness and by extension uh, saying that white is more beautiful um in in this artwork um and as maxine puts it in in their post in reference to a different artist but um still standing out as a statement uh, on its own um the artwork that the, that they were talking about acts to confine black womanhood to a space of functional and visual servitude to white beauty so this is when you uh, depict black servants alongside white women um things like that but these things aren't discussed as much as people see it as a criticism of the artistry which i suppose it is it's not denying the talent of the artist but it is unpacking ideals of beauty and uh, specifically western ideals of beauty um and this trope and what maxine brings up can also be seen and uh, has been argued to be present in rossetti's uh, the beloved from 1866 which again features um our model fanny eaton from uh, the mother of moses um and another black child in the foreground of the of the painting and these two along with uh, other women um who the the rest of the women are white but they are dark haired these this collection of characters literally frame this central white fair-haired woman 
um, who is supposed to be the beloved, the beautiful one, the bride. Um, and they are literally acting as a frame. And where a frame is designed to enhance a painting, but not take away from it. And so these women around this central light-haired white woman <laughs> are designed and placed there, um, it is argued, to um, make the central woman more beautiful. And so putting, depicting these women, and specifically the black women, um, is, a, is a example of how these pre-Raphaelites who thought they were also revolutionary they were actually still feeding in to that western colonial colonial mindset of beauty where whiteness appears more beautiful in their eyes against blackness so i'm mentioning this um as i said because it's all insight into how the pre-raphaelites weren't actually as ideologically revolutionary as they seemed yes they were taking on new themes they had new stories to paint they were going into history and legend and they were painting it beautifully um they were still committing to the same colonial patriarchal artistry of the men that came before them um there's an article by erin frisch um who did their honors honors thesis on this at trinity um and she says um each painting demonstrates the way in which the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood used medievalism to both deny and perpetuate Victorian social and artistic conventions, end quote. So essentially, it's this idea that the tragic women of medieval history the tra um, that we've been talking about is actually not a new thing in artistry at all, and it is still um, depicting women as men want uh, women to be. Uh, she also goes on to say, quote, in an era known for sexual self-consciousness and rigid gender lines, issues of masculinity and femininity inevitably interact with pre-Raphaelite works. A clear, a very clear gendered dynamic occurs within pre-Raphaelite paintings, end quote. And we can see that in all the paintings that I've talked about in this episode. There's another quote, uh, continuing on from that, quote, Speaking in general terms, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood was composed of a group of male painters who often took a romantic interest in the unknowable woman whose sexuality represented the irrational which the romantics valued over rational thought, end quote. So you have these extraordinary women, um, these tragic women, and still depicting them as an object, literally, and purely for their femininity. Um, I'm going to keep quoting this. <laughs> I think it's the uh, the introduction or the abstract of the thesis. It's, it's just very good and it's perfect for what I'm talking about. Quote, for this reason, the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood used their paintings to explore femininity. The pre-Raphaelites expressed fascination with female sexuality, beauty, and madness. End quote. And that's with Ophelia uh, earlier, um, maybe Isabella in the Pot of Basil, um, the entranchesses and temptresses that were Circe and Lilith and Medea. And through this, it allowed, um, as Aaron Frisch says, for the pre-Raphaelites to create a sort of set of rules, again, um, as men have done for years, for how women should be viewed, how they should be looked at, and how women should model their behaviour. Um, and this is again still from from this thesis, just not directly quoting. Um, 
And then the key, the key quote from this thesis is, quote, despite the pre-Raphaelites' conception of their movement as a rebellion, the ways in which their paintings confirm traditional gendered norms contrasts with the technical innovations made by the Brotherhood, end quote. So they, they were doing something new, they were creating beautiful art, but they were still doing it within the guidelines, the patriarchal colonial guidelines, which... Um, had dominated art before them, Western art before them. So yes, this is our this is our last part, um, part four. I think I believe we're on now. Yes. So all these tragic women that I've talked about, the 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 temptresses and the enchantresses that came next, it's all part of a, well, what Aaron says in this this thesis, a doctrine of femininity. And it's again just men painting women how they want women to be, um, essentially. And so you've got the innocent that are too pure for the world, and then we've got the enchantresses that are really hot, but they're evil. Um, and that's all that women can be, unless it's Simeon Solomon who has a slightly more empathetic view of women, and that it could be perhaps down to his queerness. Um, maybe he doesn't see women in the same way, but again, there's probably still overtones. Um, of voyeurism there but who knows um, it's all just a discussion and a theory um, so I hope that's made sense I hope that's been a journey for you um, it's turned out to be so much longer than I expected so I really I really appreciate it if you've actually made it this far um, and welcome to season two I guess um, I have no idea if they're all going to be this long. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got a note here on my on my Word document that says I'm writing this at half twelve in the morning. Good luck with this future Ariel. I think it, I think you did okay past Ariel. That was well done. So yes, I hope you've enjoyed listening. Um, if I have my Instagram set up, it will be linked, um, and there will be all the paintings that I've talked about today. Um, along with links to the articles or other posts I've talked about so you can have a bit more of a look at it yourself if it interests you um but yes I hope this has made sense <laughs> I always worry that I ramble on and it doesn't actually come to anything um so yes I hope you've enjoyed listening I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day um and that you stay happy and healthy as you can be. My name is Ariel and this has been Pulling Back the Canvas. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.